We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like you to look at Proverbs chapter 10, this text that Charles read to us in verse um, 18 through 21. You'll find that the Proverbs don't look like they're contextual, but they really are. It's just that they're not highlighted in paragraphs. It's like a Proverbs 10 and following is like a river that flows and the text will have a current and then it'll get picked up by another current, but it'll carry in an idea. And so you have about four verses that form a little current within Proverbs 18 through 21. And let me tell you what it's about. I have a friend who was in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. His name was Jim. And he contacted me, oh, years ago. He said, I've just had the sweetest four months of my Christian life. I said, well, what'd you do? Did you go to seminary or did you get through a course? He said, no, I had a sickness. And I said, well, that can do it. What was it? He said, it was a uh, infection down in my voice box, my larynx. Or as Barney Fife would say, your larynx. Okay. He said, I couldn't speak. Couldn't utter a word. I said, really? That's terrible. Yeah. He said, it's the greatest four months of my Christian life. He said, it's amazing how holy you can be when you can't speak. And he made a statement that I've, it's kind of obvious to you, but it's true. There is no sin that can't ultimately be traced back to having your tongue as a confederate in it. If you can shut your mouth you can get a whole lot more done. It's kind of like if you're going to go be a holy man or a holy woman, so you join a monastery or a nunnery and you change your clothes to look like everybody, you get you a haircut, a tonsure that looks like everybody, you give away your worldly possessions, you have your disciplines, but you then you have to take in the first few months a vow of silence because now you can't sin if we can just hush you up. So, uh, I finished this text this morning. One of my buddies said, man, my ribs are hurting. He was next to his wife. All right. <laughs> Whenever you preach on giving prayer or the tongue, you're in trouble. All right. Because nobody escapes. So, let's all enter into guilt ourselves here. In verse 18, he says, he that conceals hatred, it's going to come out of you. Lying lips. And then from lying lips, you spread slander. And then what's the last word of verse 18? You're a fool. The point is, is that your heart will always be betrayed by your tongue. If you talk, Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And so your tongue is your thermometer. When you think your kid is sick, how can you know? You grab his tongue, and at least when he's uh, older, okay. And you put that thermometer on his tongue, and that will tell you what all of his body is doing. And that's what the tongue does. Let me show you something interesting. I want you to look at it. It's in Ephesians 4. Paul in uh, the book of Ephesians goes, sit, walk, stand. You sit in the heavenlies. That's your position. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then you, uh, uh, first you sit, then you walk. 
in a manner worthy of the Lord, chapter 4 and 5. Then you stand firm in the Lord and in the strength of his might. But in chapter 4, he hits on an area here in verse um, 29 where he talks about the tongue. If you're going to have a a walk that corresponds to your position and a walk that prepares you for your mission, you got to deal with a couple of things. Chapter 5 talks about immorality. Chapter 5 talks about the tongue. Chapter 4 talks about love and unity. But here in verse 29, let no unwholesome or literally rotten word proceed from your mouth. You may remember a text on this in James. With our mouth, we bless God, and with our mouth, we curse men made in the image of God. My brethren, these things ought not be. Can a fountain send out from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. That shouldn't happen. That's an abnormality. And so he says, don't let an unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is for good for edification. An edifice is a building. It has to be strong. Edification means that your tongue is a help to somebody else. Like the Messiah was said of him in the book of Isaiah. Thou hast given me, O God, the tongue of a disciple that I might sustain the weary one with the word of encouragement. Let your tongue be a, uh, a spurring on of another man. In verse 29, according to the need of the moment, right when that has to be exercised. Solomon will say in the Proverbs, like uh, apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken at the right, circum uh, right circumstance. It's a work of art to know how to take your word and impose it into a circumstance to bring peace, to bring healing, to bring encouragement. You ever gotten some time when you're at a downtime and an arm goes around you and somebody speaks in your ear and goes, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. We're going to go through this together. Boy, he says, let your tongue be a thing for edification according to the need that it can give grace to those who hear. You can lift them up. So that's what your tongue should be doing. It can be a rotten thing or it can be a wonderful thing. Double-edged sword. In verse 30, when you get ready to say something you shouldn't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul lets us know we are indwelled by the Spirit of God permanently. We're sealed by Him for salvation for the day that we'll be raised from the dead. We're new creations. So when something gets ready to go out of your mouth, there's a person involved that's going to be grieved, and that is the Holy Spirit. Don't you do it. Back before I got converted, I was one of the great dirty joke tellers in the history of the world. The talent is still latent in me, but I keep it intact. But after I got saved, I, no one told me you can't tell dirty jokes anymore, but I couldn't. Something had changed. I was one of the great blasphemers of those who had not blocked for me sufficiently on the line. 
something changed. Something changed. It was the Spirit of God. And so he says, don't grieve him. And in verse 31, though the Spirit says no, in verse 31, your body is saying yes. Say it. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, meaning you're disruptive to a group, and then slander, be put away with all malice. You know what word we get from malice? Malignant, gangrene, cancer. All of those terms in 31, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, what do they all have in common? They come from your tongue. And so he says, verse 29, you let it be wholesome, don't let it be rotten. 30, don't you grieve the Holy Spirit. 31, don't you say yes to your sin. Rather be, verse 32, kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let me show you something to make you feel worse. Take a look at James and chapter 3. Are you doubting your salvation yet? Hang on. He says that uh, in verse 3, start right there. We put bits into the horse's mouth so they may obey us. We direct their entire body. One little body part directs the entire horse. Verse 4, the ships so great, driven by strong winds, directed by a very small rudder. One little piece of furniture, a rudder, and it guides the entire ship. Verse 5, the tongue is a small part of the body. It boasts of great things. How great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. One small body part, but you can alienate everybody in your family, your friends, your church, and everybody around you, that nobody will give you a, a recommendation. No one wants to be around you. It can ruin your life. How many of you, without standing up and pointing, know somebody that has ruined your family, your neighborhood, your job, your workplace, or friendships because they couldn't keep their mouth shut? It can do that. And verse 6, because the tongue is a fire meaning it's dangerous. It is the very world of iniquity. All of the world of evil can be traced into your tongue. The DNA of every sin is in your mouth. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It sets on fire the course of our life, and it is set on fire by hell. I tell you, James gets to the point, doesn't he? Little Jimmy, they called him. <laughs> Jesus' little brother. And so he says, your tongue is set on fire by hell. Your tongue is a hotline to hell. And it will be like napalm, like Agent Orange. It will take out everything in your life if you can't get it under control. Paul said to Timothy, young man, you be sound in speech, which is above reproach, that you can be an example of good deeds. The word sound in Greek, hugiamos, we get our word hygiene. Let your tongue be hygienic. Don't put 
I'll never forget my eighth grade coach saying to one of us one time, boy, you got something in your mouth I wouldn't hold in my hand. Ooh, he was a line coach. Okay. And so he says in verse seven, no one can tame the tongue. Every species of beast and birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed. No one can tame the tongue. There is nobody that keeps a pet tongue. That's a, that's a stupid statement. That keeps a pet snake. You keep a pet snake, you may have a snake that cohabits with you, but they won't go get the paper. Okay. You can't go, hey, snake, go get it. They won't do that. They won't crawl up in your lap and lick you. All right. Don't try it. When you pick up a snake, where do you pick a snake about? Pick him by his head. You can't trust him. If you grab him by the rear, he'll just nail you. And so he says, no one can tame the tongue. The philosophy of words is such. Think about this, that God made man in his image. God is a God that he speaks. The very second person of the Trinity is called the word of God. God speaks. 5,800 times in the Old Testament, it says the word of the Lord came to. God majors in Christ, the living word of God, the Bible, the written word of God, and the spirit of God that illumines his word to us. We trust for salvation in his word, for our guidance from his word, and in being raised from the dead, we have hope in his word. Amen. He is a God who speaks true. And when he made man, he made us with an, an anthropomorphism. The Bible speaks of the hands of God and the eyes of God. It speaks of the, the uh, uh, eyes of God move to and fro, that the long, long, Lord longs to hear, that he can smell the sweet aroma of our... Those are anthropomorphisms where it takes infinite qualities in God and illustrates them by finite attributes of man, letting us know that God is man-like because he made us in his image. That's why Adam is called the son of God in a creative sense. Christ has an unshared sonship as the begotten son. He is eternally generated from the father as his son. Uh, you and I as Christians are adopted sons and daughters. And so God is a communicative God. And so he made us that can create with opposable thumbs and a radius that can turn. He put little things. I was a biology minor. I know pretty much everything. And uh, in your wrist, you have uh, called metacarpals. And they're like little bones that are not attached, but they're so tight in there. A little sheath is around them that they operate independently. And every one of them looks the same. They're like dice. They're formed a certain way in all of us. So we can do this and we can do that and we can do that. Isn't that amazing? We got a hinge. We got a rotator. God, God makes us to be able to do finitely what he does. He creates. He lets us in a, not make something out of nothing, but make something out of something. He just lets us do that. And he gives us this horrible ability that I can breathe in air, I can press down on a diaphragm, and I can push air over this voice box, and it's got strings in it 
Shing. And I can set them in motion. You've got big, long strings if you're in that section of the choir, okay? You've got little short ones if you're in that section. Bass and a soprano. And you can make a column of sound. Isn't that amazing? Uh, I can make a column of sound. And then I can take this stuff, okay? I can take this muscle that is unattached and I can actually, I can move it so quick that I can shape that column of sound. I can cut it off, break it off with consonants and vowels, hard and soft sounds. So I can say, I love you. And that makes you smile. I know you're smiling because you communicate. Because in my gross anatomy class, let me tell you what I found out. You take the face off of a person. I don't know how many muscles they have, but your entire face is covered with different striations. So you, can, you can't hide what you are. Your face will show it up. That's amazing. So we have expressions of emotion. And I can take what is on my heart, put it into a column of sound. And if you are trained in the same sounds that I am, that you will hear that I love you. And it will go into your brain and into your emotion. And it'll make you happy. Or I can say, hey, fat boy. How'd you get so fat? <laughs> and I can depress your day. You're growing older, I see. <laughs> that is an ability God gives that I can control, affect, rotten or hygienic. I can lift up souls. I can be like God, and I can pronounce this, or soothe this, or illumine this. Incredible. I can take what men don't know, say what they do know, and if they are thinking the same language, they can immediately think like I'm thinking and feel like I'm feeling. Only God could do something like that and give us brains that that same I love by you and my brain is your brain's going to interpret it identically to what I think. And so, unless you're married, okay. <laughs> then you can think different things, okay. Uh, what am I talking about? Go, go back to Proverbs 10 right here. And so, the idea is, is that in verse 19, the more you talk where there's many words, transgression's unavoidable. Because our tongues are so slippery and our tongues are so quick. Would you agree with that? Hold your tongue. Your tongue is so fast that you can feel it. When you get cut off in traffic and you look out the window and go, may God bless you greatly. No, you don't, do you? We're instinctive. Our tongues are so they're like a snake's tongue. 
It moves fast and it's double-edged. And so, in verse 19, so the wise guy knows how to strain against. Restraint means that you hold it back. You feel it, but you don't say it. That's wisdom. As a matter of fact, the appearance of wisdom is always that of restraint. When you see a person sitting in a group and everybody's talking, and that person is not looking around, that would be rudeness, but he's listening and he's watching to all that's being said. You immediately account to that man or that woman wisdom and humility. Uh, it was said that Lincoln, Washington, and Jefferson in group settings were silent. They were too busy listening to gather information. And so that when they spoke, they knew that they could not be misquoted. And so they would wait to speak until they knew exactly what to say. And so, listen to this. When David was in a hard situation on one occasion, I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. I was mute and silent. I refrained from even speaking what was good. And my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Have you ever had something happen in your life that you didn't understand and it just set you off with anger and you were afraid to open your mouth because of what you might have said to God? You might have pulled a Job and say, I have been, I have been found guilty when I'm innocent. David said, I felt this way, so I had to shut my mouth and not speak. And then I spoke and said, after he went, Lord, make me know my end and what is the extent of my days and let me know how transient I am. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. They make an uproar for nothing. He said, God, teach me through this how needy I am of you. Now, that's what you have to do sometimes, is put a muzzle on your mouth in the presence of the wicked so you don't embarrass yourself and lose your, your uh, testimony, and you wait till you're under control, and then you speak. Think before you speak. And so, he continues here in verse 20, rather than rottenness, the tongue of the righteous is his choice silver. It's beautiful, it's pure, it's rare. It's the center of focus, it's admired. A great tongue, all of these things come with a great tongue. Kindness, patience, love, encouragement. The Messiah, thou hast given me the tongue of disciples that I may lift up the weary with a word. Uh, I know, Rose, you were one of our counselors in the church. Have you ever found people that you could just reach in their weariness and just lift them up with encouragement? There's a way out of this, and we can do it together. You give them hope. Humility is expressed in the voice. Forgiveness, mercy, truth, salvation's story. 
They went to arrest Jesus from the temple soldiers. They came back empty-handed. What's the matter? They said, never a man spake as this man. If you want to arrest him, you go arrest him. Never a man spake as this man. They heard the gospel. Holiness, graciousness. At Capernaum, they, they, they marveled at the, quote, the gracious words that are falling from his lips. Is this the son of Joseph? Let no unwholesome word proceed, but only such a word is needed for the, the moment. When you get to where you can exercise that horrible ability, that is what Spurgeon called the voice, that terrible privilege to take words and get them up in the air where everybody can hear them and feel. When I went through that depression back in 2006, it hit me for four months. I didn't know what it was. We got a guy in our congregation. Do y'all remember any of you? A fellow named Gene Wilburn, our first elder who ever passed away. And he was a marvelous fellow uh, from Abilene, Texas. And Gene, I remember just not knowing what the future held. I felt I had discovered some foible that no one had discovered through history. And I felt this arm go around me over in the elders' room. And Gene looked at me, a man I deeply respected. And he said, have you found yourself in the fetal position in your bathroom? I said, no, not yet. He said, well, when you do, I've been there. I said, what do you mean? About 20 years ago, I was there. And then Lorraine said, his wife, oh, yeah, he was there. He said, I was there. I said, you're kidding, you? And he told me. And I said, tell me one thing, Gene. You tell me I'm going to go through this. You're going to make it. I made it. You're going to make it. Had a buddy out in Decatur named Dean Hancock. Came over to the house, talked. He was the first guy that told me to write on the Song of Solomon. He said, you'll make enough to buy a Dodge Charger. I guarantee you. You go write. He's right. And he said to me, he's a very well-off businessman. He said, have you found yourself in the fetal position in the bathroom? I thought, you've been talking to Gene? He said, no. He said, I've been there. You, me. You've been there. I've been there. You're from Texas A&M. How could you do that? He said, I've done it. He said, and I said, tell me, Dean, I'm going to make this. You're going to make this. Shortly after that, I had a woman named, you remember Nan Anderson? Dear friend, we go back into the 70s. And uh, I went through that, and she came up and took my arm and pulled me close. She said, we've been there. Who? Me and John. Pilots get hit with this stuff a lot of times. We walk through it together. You're kidding. No. Nan, you tell me I'm going to make this. Darling, she gave me that big Nan smile. You're going to make this. It's like we did. You're going to make this. Shortly thereafter, I had a letter from one of our staff. Been there. 
Then another one of my staff, been there. Then another one of my elders, been there. Then two young guns called me, one from North Carolina, one from Colorado. Tommy, you doing all right? Yeah, why? Been there. You're kidding. You tell me I'm going to make this. You're going to make this. Now those, are you amazed that I can, you, you may tell you their names where they live. I could, I'll never forget them because they got me a friend in need. It's a friend indeed. And that's where they were. A brother is made for the day of adversity. The wicked, if you'll look in verse 20, the choice of the, the tongue of the righteous is a beautiful thing. The wicked, their heart is, the word worth isn't there in the Hebrew. It just simply says, the heart of the wicked is little. Remember the Grinch? Little bitty heart. The, the heart of the wicked, the Bible says, they're silent in the gate. They have nothing to say. Because your mouth speaks out of that which fills your heart. In verse 21, he expands, the lips of the righteous feed many. Men want to hear from the tongue connected to such a heart. I wanted to hear what Gene Wilburn said, what Nan Anderson said. I wanted to hear what Dean Hancock said because I so admired those men. Uh, I don't want to hear what a fool thinks. I want to hear what they think. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And so in verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many. At the age of 12, Christ is surrounded in the temple by seminary profs that want to hear his questions and then hear his answers. That's a sixth grader. They congregate around the sixth grader. Uh, in the synagogue, they marveled at the gracious words flowing from his lips. In the temple, where did this man get this wisdom? My teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. By the sea, they pushed him so much he had to push off into the sea to get an amphitheater. In Peter's house, he healed his mother-in-law. And then everybody, as soon as the sun went down and the Sabbath was over, everybody's bringing their sick to Peter's house because everybody wanted to get in on Jesus. Remember Peter's mother-in-law that was healed? I'm sure she thought, this is great, until the whole city showed up at her front door. My wife just hates it. Here's the word she hates the worst when I come home and go, incidentally. <laughs> she hates that. Incidentally, there's nine people coming over here in about an hour. You might want to sweep up. Yeah. She loves that. Okay. Peter's mother-in-law gets healed. She's serving, and all of a sudden, everybody's showing up at her house, and they're packed out. She wanted to watch Gunsmoke. She can't get to the TV because everybody's taking guns. Andy, all the, you know, golden girls, you can't watch nothing. She thinks, man, this can't get no worse, when all of a sudden, dirt starts falling down from the roof. And here's some guys digging through it with a quadriplegic being lowered. What is this? SEAL Team 6 going on in my house? God will do that to you, honey. I'll forgive you. And he found out he's going to take over. And I need your house right here. 
and I don't need this ceiling. And so everywhere he would go, going down the road at Jericho, so many around him, he couldn't get any freedom. Here's a guy up in the tree, the IRS agent. What's his name? Zacchaeus. He's, he can't get to him because of the crowd. Uh, down the Emmaus Road, uh, soft falls the even tide. Abide with us. Don't go away. And he sits down and he's recognizing the breaking of the bread. That's him. Didn't our hearts burn at the opening of the scriptures? Two guys, one guy, Mary falling at his feet. Every place Christ would go, people are always getting around him. And they would say things like, where did he get such wisdom? This is Joseph's son. He's not a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. He's not even a zealot or an Essene or a Herodian. He's just, you know, in Israel, you didn't often quote Bible. You quoted, that was considered arrogant to quote Bible. You would quote the Talmud that was a written narrative of the Mishnah is what the tradition held about the Bible. You didn't, it was like a Catholic would not quote the Bible. He would quote what Pope whatever said about the Bible. That would be considered arrogant to say you could read the Bible. How many times in Jesus's ministry did he ever quote the Talmud? Zero. Zero. He would rebuke over it. You teach as your doctrines the precepts of men. He did quote the Old Testament 179 times. It was part of his speech. And in Galatia, they begged Paul to come back the next Sabbath, that further things be spoken. Uh, Peter and John, they observed the confidence of Peter and John that they were unlettered and untaught men, and they were marveling, and then began to re recognize them. They've been with Jesus. That's why. And so, you know, here's something else. Listen to this. Moses before he gives the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. He says, hear, O heavens, and let the earth hear the, the words of my mouth. Come to attention, all the known universe. I'm about to say something. What's he gonna say? Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech as the dew, as droplets on the grass, as showers on the herb, because I proclaim the name of Yahweh. Ascribe greatness to our God. His work is perfect. His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Moses said, everybody stand at attention. I'm about to bring life from the dead because I'm about to tell you about God. Isn't that good? And so that's the power of our tongue. Would you like to become very well-loved real quickly? Let me show you how to make friends and uh, influence people. If you'll turn back one page, let's see. In chapter, nope, go up one page in chapter 11 of Proverbs. You see verse 30? Proverbs eleven thirty: the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. A righteous man bears fruit. He's like the Garden of Eden. And everybody wants to sit around that woman's feet and hear what she thinks. And he that is wise wins souls, or literally takes souls. When you hear them, 
They're winning to you. You ever speak of somebody being winsome? When you hear them, you are now converted over to their way of thinking. I want to be like you. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that is wise is winsome. Biblically, there is no such thing with true religion and being unlikable. You are loved. Evil men will hate you, but you will be loved if there is a righteous trueness. People get attracted to you. And in verse 31, look, if the righteous is rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? The righteous in verse 30 can draw a crowd. The righteous will be recompensed in the earth. How much more the wicked and the sinner? The thought, you know, when Peter quotes that in 1 Peter, it goes like this. It is through difficulty that the righteous is saved. Meaning, just because you are righteous, does that mean that your sins will not come back and hurt you? Do any of us, because we are Christians, have the freedom to disobey, and because we are children of God, we can get away with it? That's what that verse means. That in verse 30, the righteous draw a crowd, but in 31, the righteous are recompensed in the earth. You can either be blessed or you can be recompensed. If I choose to lose my temper in a pickup game of basketball, which I no longer play, if I lose my temper and a guy sees it, will he come to church and listen to me? No, because I am duplicitous to him. And so the righteous are blessed and the righteous are recompensed. If you lose your temper in your house and you raise your voice and curse your family, you will alienate those children for life. Even though I'm a saved man, even though you're a saved man. There's no king's ex. And if you think it's rough for you, how much more the wicked and the sinner? How would you like to be Charles Manson? How would you like to be David Koresh? How would you like to be Ma Barker or Bonnie Parker? And so God is a God that pours down his blessing upon the righteous. There's enough struggles, but it is through difficulty that the righteous is saved. It was James Dobson who once said, you should teach every kid that life is loaded. It's loaded. It's a scary thing. Well, a fellow named Charles Hodge, is my, he's my hero. He taught at Princeton University, incoming freshmen. They didn't have a seminary per se, just everybody was in this Bible college, this Presbyterian Bible college. It was started because Harvard, the Congregationalists, went liberal. Yale, the Congregationalists, went liberal. The Presbyterians tried it. So they started Princeton. And Charles Hodge would teach systematic theology and um, Romans for 60 years. He lived 200 feet from Nassau Hall. He had a bad hip. He would write by laying at a 45-degree angle on a tube of 12, reach around it, and write at a 45 to take pressure off his hips. That's how he would write. And then he would gather up his strength and make it 70 yards. 
and he would sit down and teach those boys. You went to Princeton at about 16, and he would teach these boys Bible and systematic for four years and then go to the next group. Uh, he also would go over on Sundays. They were Sabbatarian. They would call Sunday off. They would eat in the dorm, and he would go over and get a rocking chair, and Grandpa Charlie would sit at 80, and he would teach these young 16-year-olds about money and women and children and government and England and politics. He was grandpa that would teach him. Isn't that something? He was a tree of life. There was a guy that also taught. His name was William Tennant. He had what was called the Log Cabin College of, I think it was 18 boys that he didn't want to let the Congregationalists get them. He didn't want to send them over to England and let the uh, Anglicans get them. And so he started the Log College, and he would teach there in New Jersey. He would teach all of these boys along the Neshiminy, and he would educate them from the time they were little boys. I think about four of them signed the uh, Declaration of Independence. They went on to be great guys. One of them, Gilbert Tennant, helped lead the first great awakening. They changed that log college. In time, it became Princeton University. One man, William Tennant, with the log college teaching these boys. They were called the log college by their enemies that made fun of their little homeschool. But it became Princeton. Isn't that something? Let me give you another one. How many of y'all ladies remember Joy Brown? Debbie, you remember Joy? You remember Joy? W.L. Brown's wife, she was, uh, she came to know Christ uh, in the womb. I think she was prenatal in her conversion. She loved the Lord all of her life. Met her husband at John Brown University down in Arkansas. Uh, they went through World War II together, depression together, sent their son to Vietnam together, lost a daughter to cancer together, she was in our church. She was an old fundamentalist all the way, loved the Lord. And uh, her husband was like a mentor to me. I, all, I listened to everything that he said. He was a great, great. This was the guy that was offered a job by Al Capone, I told you a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And uh, Joy, I asked her once, she had written a book on the glory of God. She had heard everybody from Lewis Chafer to young John Walford to uh, Harry Ironside to Griffith Thomas. She'd heard every one of my old biographies speak in person. She had encountered Harry Ironside on an uh, elevator once who put his hand on her son Lewis's head. Her son became the, uh, the uh, engineer for Radio Free Europe. That was her son. And Harry Ironside put his hand on his head and blessed him there. So she would talk about that. And I asked Joy one day, I said, Joy, you've forgotten more than everybody else knows. I said, who are you putting this into? And she said, oh, I'm, Pastor, I'm not ready. I said, are you going to write our second book? Then you'll be ready. I said, Joy, you just can't be learning 
This was the only time I ever reproved her. I said, you got to get this stuff out and not let it die with you. We can't bury your memories. She said, okay, let me prepare. And I went to Barbara McGee that was over our women's ministry. And I said, here's a rule from the top. Me, the head enchilada. Okay. Joy Brown is not to be in another Bible study ever. She is exiled. She is to teach and disgorge all this stuff she knows. Her and her husband were on Kwajalein Island in World War II so he could install this new classified thing known as radar that helped us win the war. He installed radar. And so I said, you're going to teach, okay? She said, let me get ready. So she spent three months getting her notes ready. And then we got some young single girls and college girls that would meet at her house for Miss Joy. And I asked her after it got going, I said, how are we doing? She said, we've been going for about 12 weeks now. I said, where are you? She said, page two. <laughs> Joy had no indoor voice, okay. She was not discreet in that sense. She said, all they want to know about is boys and sex. I said, well, tell them what you know. And we would go on trips to Israel, and her girls would be in the Israel trip. And I would always see them picking up stones. And I said, what are these? We've all got to pick Joy up stones from wherever we are so she can build her, her uh, uh, lithological map of the rocks of Israel. And we would call her girls brownies. Okay. They were a cult. And when I buried Joy, her brownies were there. And she just found out the blessing that she could be. Sometimes you can be too humble to be used. She realized that she had so much to say that there was no question those girls could ask that this almost 90-year-old woman could not give them direction. Isn't that something? And so, see, this is the nature of God. There has never been a time in God's, for lack of better words, God's life, that he has been incommunicado. There is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Communication, revelation, expression is found in the Trinity. Every time you say anything, that goes back to eternity because we're in God's image. We are, we have what are called anthropomorphisms. The Bible speaks about the eyes of God, the, the sweet smell of a holy life to God. It speaks of the hands of God, the arms of God underneath us, the everlasting arms. God doesn't have those, but he talks in human ease because he's made us to see like he sees. He's made us to, to create and hold and love and speak truth and speak graciously, or you can follow after the prince of lies. He's made us to do that. You can do that. And so everything that we have that is glorious is an anthropomorphism of God. It reflects God. That's why it's glorious. Animals can't do it. We do it. Uh, and that's why that when God 
as soon as he starts creating, how does he do it? And God said, let there be light. He speaks. His word creates. In him all things were created in heavens and the earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things have been created through Christ and by Christ. And for his glory they existed. And so he, he creates by his word, through his word, implementing his spirit that passes over the surface of the deep. And so the spirit carries out the will of the son who is doing the father's will and the spirit glorifies the son in obedience to the father. This marvelous triunity. God is an expressive person. His son is called the word of God. When he comes in glory in Revelation 19, there is a word on his thigh, the word of God, which no one knows. God cannot be known unless he speaks. And that's the very nature of God from Genesis to Revelation is he is a God who speaks and he has given us this wonderful ability with this muscle that is loose in our mouth. It is the one muscle in our body that is unattached. And it's the quickest muscle you have. It's the most dexterous muscle you have. And it can go the longest of any muscle that we have. It's virtually tireless. And so he lets us speak. And when you think about it, the way that God encountered man is God spoke and said, let there be life. When he sent salvation, he sent his son. And the angel said, glory to God in the highest peace among men. It's his word. I say that because when I was a young guy in high school, I remember reading a Reader's Digest. Do they still make Reader's Digest? Okay. I read Reader's Digest. I think I was in an algebra class. Okay. I'm reading Reader's Digest. And I read a story, and it still comes to me. I've never shared this, but this was a story I read about a guy who was a professor at Princeton in the 1930s. And he told about a visiting professor who they gave a room to because he was a very well-known mathematician. His name was Albert Einstein. And he had already come up with E equals mass times the speed of light squared of energy that was soon to become a big part of our history. And so Einstein, he said, one day I was on a bridge there in New Jersey in Princeton that went over a brook, a stream, a river. And I'm just leaning on it, looking down. And I noticed somebody at my shoulder and I looked and I saw a man having a real bad hair day. Okay. It was Albert Einstein. And he said, I just looked back down at the water and thought, I'm standing next to, by common consent, the smartest individual maybe that's ever lived, this man. And he said, uh, I looked at him. He looked at me, nice pacifistic Jewish fellow, Albert Einstein. And he's looking down. Problem is, he can't speak English. I can't speak German. So we're incommunicable. And so we're just looking. And I thought to myself, I would love to get inside of his head for just a minute, just to touch, touch base with him. And at that time, a fish came swimming along. And he said, I looked at it. And then I looked and he said, Einstein was looking at me. And he went in German, F-I-S-C-H-E. 
fisk. Fish. Fisk. Fish. We had touched. We touched. We made communication. And he said, if I'd wanted to, I could have gone water, whatever water is. Trees, sure. Me, Princeton. We could have started right there at fish. And that story stayed in my mind because in a sense, when God, who created Einstein, wanted to contact with man, Christ became to us wisdom from God. Glory to God in the highest. He's come to us. He promised and he came in Christ. And now we can know who God is. He that sees me has seen God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the word of God. Here he is. What do the letters, Jesus Christ, son of God, what do those initial letters spell? Do you know? Ichthus. What is an ichthus? It's Greek for fish. And in a sense, and that's how Christians would identify who they were. With Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you'd make an ark in the dirt, they would make another ark. And that's how you connected. And in a sense, that is how God spoke to us. Jesus, a baby and a manger. Christ, the Lord, a baby, a man. Ah, God, the Son of God. Baby, the Lord, this is God. What's his role? Christ, the Lord, Jesus. Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. Now you look at him and you'll see me. And as you see me, you'll see you. And you'll know you need what this man does, which is atonement. In a sense, that is how God establishes himself to us, as he speaks. Fish. Isn't that something? Father in heaven, we're going to celebrate communion. And we're going to remember you. Fish. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Look at him. Do you see him? Yes. Understand him and know me. And when you know me, you can know you and you can know the world and you can know history and you can know nature and you can know the galaxies and you can know the past and evil and redemption and you can know what's coming. You can know all things revealed. Fish. Ichthus. Thank you that the highest expression of all of time and space, we hold the symbol in our hand. This is my body and this is my blood. Amen.